0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a recent special section on community-based monitoring. And I was very lucky to be joined by two Bioscience editorial board members, Rick Bonney and Finn Danielson. I asked them to tell you a little bit about themselves in the interview itself. So with no further ado, let's hear from them. All right, Finn and Rick, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Great, and it's really nice to talk to you both um, after having shared so many emails, um, you know, over the past few months and years. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and get a little bit of an introduction uh, from each of you to kind of give us an idea of, you know, where you work and what kind of things you work on. Um, Rick, why don't we start with you? All right, well, I'm Rick Bonney from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where I've been working for over
1: 40 years. I formally retired from the lab two years ago um, where my last position was director of the public engagement and science program. But I continue working at the lab now as a visiting scholar and I continue working in many facets of the field of citizen science.
2: And um, my name is Finn Danielson. I'm an ecologist with the Nordic foundation for development and ecology also called NordECO. I'm based in uh, Copenhagen in Denmark and um, Nodeco is a non-governmental organization. We work at the interface of conservation of less resources and local economic development. So we are biologists and anthropologists. And uh, for the past many years, we worked with building capacity in community-based monitoring programs uh, in many countries.
0: Okay, great. So, you know, to get into the f- the first question, this is in regard to a special section recently published in Bioscience on community-based monitoring. Um, and. Before we go any further, I I thought we might just talk a little bit about that term itself. Um, You know, kind of what does that mean in this context? What does that mean for science? And I'll I'll throw that open to either of you, whoever would like to take it.
2: Well, community-based monitoring, you can say it's monitoring undertaken by local stakeholders, Uh, local stakeholders using their own resources and in relation to aims and objectives that make sense to them. It's sometimes considered a type of of citizen science. And, And when I say local stakeholder, stakeholders it can be for instance fishermen or it can be farmers it can also be local government staff uh, which is called extension staff in in some countries but it can also be amateur naturalists or just citizens concerned with threats for instance threats from local pollution and uh, and sometimes community-based monitoring programs they involve indigenous communities and then the programs often will include indigenous knowledge well
1: finn mentioned that community-based monitoring is sometimes called a type of citizen science. I would agree with that. Um, I would point out that way back in 2009, uh, a group of folks from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology published an article in Bioscience that was kind of defining citizen science at the time. And we talked about different types of citizen science then, uh, including something that we called contributory citizen science, which is thought of mostly as science-driven, top-down. you got a big question. You need a lot of people to answer it. You come up with a defined protocol that everybody follows so you can compare all the data. At the other end of the extreme, we talked about co-created citizen science, which tends to grow, as Finn just said, um, out of a local need, a local community stakeholder, people that are being directly affected by an issue, like fishermen or farmers, And they tend to be deeply involved in the process, so it's more of a partnership between scientists and community members, or even led by the community. And so I tend to think of community-based monitoring as a type of co-created citizen science. But I also want to say that I'm worried sometimes that people get too hung up in nomenclature. And what's really important is that we figure out appropriate responses for everybody to work together all the stakeholders, all the interested members of the public, to try to gather the data we need to answer pressing environmental issues.
0: Okay, great. I think that you know uh, gets us started off on exactly the right foot. And now I hope we could take, uh, you know, from those descriptions one example or two examples. Um, What's an example of a program that operates, you know, is either community-based monitoring or citizen science? And I'll leave that open to either one of you just to kind of give our listeners an idea of what this means in, you know, kind of the real world when we talk about these terms. So one of the best known citizen science projects in the world at this point is eBird,
1: which was started and developed in 2002 at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. eBird is global, There from every continent, from almost every country. We've now collected over 50 million checklists around the world, documented over 10,000 species. And lest anybody think that this is just an exercise in counting or stamp collecting, in the year 2020, there were 93 articles published based on eBird data in peer-reviewed journals, 93 articles in one year alone, and it just continues to grow. But that's not community-based monitoring. That's a top-down form of citizen science, as we were talking about before. But what's significant about eBird is that it's not really so much of a project. It's a platform. It's a platform on which you can build all kinds of projects. You can build all kinds of local projects. So if you were to go to the eBird website and click on the uh, portal web, uh, the portal link, you would find that there are lots of portals, again, around the world and around the United States where people are beginning to develop local projects. And what's cool about the eBird platform is because everybody, one, platform that they can use to put in their data, but they can customize the project to their local needs, and yet at the same time take advantage of all the data processing that's built into eBird, the regional editors, the smart data forms, um, all the checking that goes into eBird to make sure that the data are accurate. So citizen science writ large can provide these platforms that can be used by community-based monitoring, but there are also community-based Projects that begin without any kind of big platform, and they develop what they need on their own.
0: Okay, and you know, one more question on eBird, since it was you know started so long ago, it was so early. Um, what was the what was the process like for you know gathering and collecting data at that time? It was the early days of the internet, or were the people filling out um, forms stating you know that they saw X bird in Y location um, and mailing it in? You know, what was the process like then, and how's it evolved?
1: So. The citizen science program at the Lab of Ornithology began in some sense in the 1930s where people were just keeping track of the birds that they saw around Ithaca, New York, around Cornell University. And then on a Monday night, they were yelling out, yes, 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 to the names of the birds. And somebody was writing that all down. And at some point, Um, put all that into one database and analyzed it and realized, hey, you know what? We actually did create um, a database of the birds in the Key Lake Basin just by having people yell out once a week what they had seen that last week. Believe it or not, that's the origins of eBird, going way back then to the earliest days of the lab of ornithology. Now, in uh, the 80s, we started a project called Feeder Watch. And Theater watch was a huge, huge uh, advancement. I actually should back up, and I should say, in the 1960s, we started a project called the Nest Record Card Program. And this was significant because now we were asking people to send in information about bird nests that they saw in their yards or their communities on little standardized cards. And the data could all go into a spreadsheet where it could be analyzed. But a huge breakthrough in the 80s when we developed Project FeederWatch along with the Long Point Bird Observatory because now we started using computer scannable data forms like the ones you would have used for the SATs or the GREs. So we were able to get the data analyzed and back to the participants much more quickly. But then the internet came along and it started to be used uh, by the public kind of in the mid 90s, around 1995. And I like to say that the internet was actually built for citizen science because it completely transformed the field, because we could start getting data in nearly real time and getting it back to the participants in nearly real time and building smart forms that would uh, let participants get a data form that was tailored to their area and their time of year so that it would really only have the species on it that they might be likely to see, which didn't mean they couldn't put in other species if they did see them. So that was really, really uh, just innovative and transformative and now most citizen science projects use the internet and there are a lot of people alive now that don't even remember a time before that. Now eBird was started kind of at the dawn of that and the National Science Foundation grant that we received in around the year 2000 to start eBird was actually partly pitched to NSF as a test of the internet to collect widespread data And I think at this point, we've proved beyond doubt that that was a good investment by NSF now that we have people from every country um, putting in literally millions of records about birds and those data being used to draw maps, to put out publications, and even to inform uh, conservation uh, and management decisions.
0: Okay, and you know I think that um, you know speaking about data and you know the, the vast number of peer-reviewed articles and so on and management decisions that have been derived from uh, you know these data, I'm, I'm wondering now about data quality. Um, it's it's I think it's a conversation that frequently comes up, um, and you know. Um, Finn, you discussed that in one of the articles in the special section. And I'm just wondering, you know, what kind of data do you get from these types of programs where you have, uh, you know, people who are not professional trained scientists making observations? Uh, you know, is it is it robust? Is it good? Is it trustworthy? Um, you know, how how is that insured and, and how does that kind of play into, uh, you know, what we wind up seeing in the literature and in management as well?
2: Thanks, James. Well. I'd like to first say a little bit about these, these community-based monitoring programs that we've been working with. Um, I, and it's really, it's really important here to be aware of that the people who are using the natural resources, such as fishermen or forest users or hunters, they've always been monitoring the environment. Changes in the environment influence how they use resources, you know, where they go fishing and hunting, which species they take, how many, and so on. So observing the environment is, is crucially, crucially important for them. And very often it's, it's, it's actually it's part of their survival strategy. Right. In other words, for community members to it's, it's relevant to, to spend time and effort on monitoring if it addresses important threats to them or needs for them and and, and access to resources is often very central to the survival of communities. And, and therefore, engagement in, in, in natural resource management process is key to them. And one important way to engage is, is, is through monitoring the resources. So uh, usually when we talk about uh, scientists monitoring and monitoring by community members without involvement of scientists, we see them as two different approaches to monitoring the environment. But in practice, it's not an either or, as also Rick has, has has mentioned here, community members and scientists can work together and learn from each other. And in practice, there's a spectrum of different approaches to monitoring with varying levels of involvement of scientists and community members. And a central challenge for community-based monitoring programs has been that scientists in some quarters question the reliability of the programs. So over the past 20 years, we've studied how well findings from community-based monitoring programs match findings from scientists' surveys. For instance, uh, in Indonesia and in six other countries in Asia and Africa, we worked with community-based organizations and set up programs measuring woody biomass in the tropical forests. The amount of carbon stored in forests is very important because CO2 is the main greenhouse gas emitted by human activities and changes in forest carbon can help mitigate climate change or they can exacerbate the problem. The community members, they assessed forest above ground biomass and vegetation plots just using sticks and ropes. And then we set up parallel programs by scientists. And we found that local community members collected information on forest biomass of comparable quality to the scientists. And in another study, we examined how well community members could assess the abundance of birds and mammals in tropical forests with food patrols. About a, about a quarter of a billion people or So they live in tropical forests, and many of them are, are, among some of the world's poorest and most marginalized people. And they use the forest and the birds and mammals there as their resource base. They depend on them. While the food, while, while community members used food patrols, we then had scientists survey fixed routes within the same forest areas, but using a variable distance line transect method. This was a Gigantic study. I mean, it involved forest areas on all three tropical continents. Uh, I think that in total, we walked a distance equal to the circumference of the Earth. And again, also in this study, we found community members and scientists produced closely similar quantitative results. After this study, we decided then to test how well community members could assess natural resources using recollection from memory of the interactions they'd had with the environment during their general use of resources. You know, sitting together around a table discussing how is it going with this resource compared to uh, the same time of the year last year? Is it becoming more plentiful, less plentiful? Is it the same or we don't know? And we tested this both in the tropics in Nicaragua and as well as in an Arctic environment in, in Greenland. All these tests across many types of ecosystems and many types of what you could ca- call social-political settings, using scientific methods adapted to community use, such as food patrols and recollection, they, they showed that community-based monitoring approaches are capable of providing accurate and precise information information independent of scientists. In the literature, you, you may find studies showing differences between findings from community-based monitoring and scientists' surveys. But if you analyze these study results in detail, you will find that in most cases, the community members and scientists' surveys, they were carried out either in different habitats or uh, it, or there were differences in the scale, in the place, or in the time of the survey efforts by community members and scientists. So uh, to us, there's no question that community-based monitoring can be a very reliable approach to uh, keeping track of what's happening in the environment. And for us then, the, the natural next question would is, what can then data from community-based monitoring be used for in terms of decision-making and management of natural resources? And that strikes me as a very good question, and it's something
0: that I often wonder about, which is, you know, once you've collected all of this very good data, you've done the due diligence and established that it's going to be useful, and you may even have an idea of what the right move to make might be. Um, how do you then transition from that knowledge into an actual policy that changes the way that things are managed on the ground. Just any example, I think, would be something that our listeners would find very valuable.
2: In the Philippines, we assisted the government in in changing their national parks, which at that time, this is 25 years ago, at that time, they largely existed only on paper, as paper parks. And we worked with with the government uh, on, on changing them into national parks in the real world. And during this work, we were surprised how quick community-based approaches to monitoring led to management decisions. So we decided to to compare two sets of monitoring approaches, one approach using community-based methods and the other using conventional monitoring methods without community involvement. And then we compared their cost effectiveness in terms of generating (laughs) natural resource management (laughs) interventions. We didn't compare this time the, the, the accuracy. We compared the the effectiveness of leading to management, because that's what really matters on the ground is <laughs> when you know that it's, that it's reasonable, accurate, the, the, the findings, right? But with nobody else, be, we could find no other studies that have been looking into how effective, how cost effective are the different approaches in terms of leading to, to management decisions. And, and management decisions, or as we call it, management interventions, if that's for instance a village bylaw banning the hunting of wild pigs during the breeding season in an area you could say come on I mean isn't isn't it is, it is it allowed to hunt wild pigs during the breeding season well you have a national law saying that it's not allowed but that's national law you know that's several days travel away and they doesn't really it doesn't really matter at, at the local level out in the village uh, what really matters is if there's a a village decision about that you don't hunt wild pigs during the breeding season because then you can hunt less wild pigs later so that is an example of, of an intervention but it could also be an intervention about prohibiting electrofishing in creeks again you would say i mean is electrofishing allowed no it's not allowed legally at the country level but it, it doesn't really matter out in, in small villages but if it's if it's agreed at a village level that matters could, an intervention could also be setting aside part of a wetland as a sanctuary uh, for Philippine crocodile, the, the threatened uh, Philippine crocodile. So these are that was the, the kind of interventions that 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 we kind of that we tried to keep track of, and so we saw here that that for the same investment, the community-based monitoring methods they led to four to six times more management interventions as compared with the conventional scientific methods. Yes, four to six times more management interventions. And even if we only looked at those management interventions that targeted the most serious threats to the biodiversity in each national park, the, the same pattern emerged. Also if we only looked at those interventions that led to policy change with a potential long-term impact, again, we, fa- we found the same pattern. So we wondered whether these results perhaps were dependent on the Philippine context or, or whether they would be applicable in other countries too. So. We took a look at published monitoring programs from the last 25 years. And then for each monitoring program, we tried to assess who made decisions on the basis of results of the monitoring and what was the minimum time from the start of the data collection to the findings being used or possible to use for decision making. And here we found that the greater involvement of local people in monitoring, the shorter time it takes from data collection to decision-making following monitoring. Actually, we found that the most participatory approach leads to management decisions, which are taken at least three to nine times faster than conventional scientist-executed monitoring without involvement of community members. But they operate at much smaller spatial scales. So it's clear to us that engaging Fishermen, farmers, and other resource users in community-based monitoring can be a very effective way of not only generating information, but also increasing decision-making and management of natural resources.
0: Okay. And that, you know, I'm curious about that. Would you be willing to speculate on why, you know, the reasons for that? You know, what makes me curious is that, you know, if you're getting data of equal quality from the scientific community versus from communities, uh, why are the communities listened to and why are they particularly effective in, you know driving management change uh, perhaps more so than you know scientists is it because scientists are seen as sort of you know outside forces who are you know disconnected from the community and less able to you know influence those local and you know regional institutions or is it or is it something else at foot
2: um I, I think that's some of the that's some of the reasons that you're pointing at here. I think that that maybe Rick can say something from from his experience with with with, with E-Bird for management or CNC change here.
1: I think that what's always been interesting to me, all the work that Finn has done and other folks that I know around the world suggest to me that community-based monitoring works better outside of the United States. Here in the U.S., most of our decisions seem to be made really pretty much top-down without any meaningful involvement from the public. There are federal agencies that say that public involvement is very important, but a lot of times I think that's window dressing more than anything else. And I think jumping ahead to the question of what is the future of citizen science and community-based monitoring, in the United States, I think that we have to have um, kind of a paradigm shift of managers Thinking of themselves as part of an ecosystem of decision makers, not just the only ones, but part of a a whole cadre of decision makers that includes the stakeholders, the people who are really going to be affected and impacted by the decisions they make.
0: Absolutely. It sounds like there's a a sort of a vast tapestry of of different approaches and, you know, it's all kind of woven together and you don't reach the, you know, the whole of of sound management until you have sort of all of those um, things in place. Rick, why don't we talk about uh, sea change a little bit and kind of how that fits into, um, you know, that that tapestry of management and decision making. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that program?
1: Yeah, but I want to back up in order to do that.
0: Sure. Okay,
1: so let me back up for a minute here and say that Finn has been talking about community-based monitoring and affecting local decision-making, which is absolutely essential. Larger-scale citizen science programs can point us to some of the issues that need to be looked at. And one of the most astonishing things that we have discovered about birds through citizen science um, is a Study, and then a paper that came out in the journal Science last year that used data from citizen science, primarily from the North American Breeding Bird Survey and the Christmas Bird Count. Didn't use eBird data because eBird's only 20 years old <clears throat> and the researchers wanted to go back farther. And they discovered by analyzing these data very carefully that we have lost 3 billion birds since 1970. That's 30% of the North American bird population has vanished since 1970. Like, holy cow, that's just unbelievable. And we would not know that had we not had these large-scale monitoring programs in place. Now, you can start to break those data down and you can say, okay, well, you know what? Different families of birds have been affected in different ways. And if you do break the data down, you'll find out that many waterfowl populations are actually increasing. Why is that? Well, that has a lot to do with duck hunters. It has a lot to do with Ducks Unlimited and the fact that there are people who are willing, who have a resource they want to protect, in this case ducks, and they're willing to invest in it. And there's a lot of money going into uh, duck management that comes from the sale of licenses, of hunting licenses. So there are ways that we can affect and impact these large-scale changes, but we have to first know what they are before we can begin to figure out what to do about them. So that sets the stage somewhat for thinking about citizen science in the oceans. And there is so much serendipity in life. Um, I have always really loved... uh, Florida and the Caribbean and I've gone down there as much as I can and in my travels I got to know um, some of the folks down there that were working on coral reef issues and fishing issues and this led to my astonishment about five years ago to an invitation to give a keynote address at a group called the South Atlantic Fisheries Management Council because they wanted to know if it would be possible to take a lot of the techniques that we've been used I've been using to study bird populations to study ocean fish. Well, right away, there are some issues here. If you want to look at birds, all you really need is a sunny day and a pair of binoculars. And if you have a bird feeder, you don't even need the binoculars. But now you want to look at fish down in the the murky depths, the inky blackness of the sea. How in the world are you going to do that? Well, fishermen. You've got fishermen who are out there who um, are catching fish with nets who are catching fish with long lines? who really understand the ocean and the resources and the question is can those fishermen collect data the same way that bird watchers will will they want to will they be interested will they be concerned that if they collect data about fish populations it will be used against them right because there's a big difference here most of the time a bird watcher by reporting that there's a huge flock of evening gross beaks at their feeder doesn't have any concern that somebody's going to say, okay, well, then let's start hunting evening gross beaks because there's lots of them. ain't going to happen. But with the fish, the fishermen could say, well, if I tell them that there are hardly any uh, red snappers left in this area, are they going to come in and say, let's stop the season? Right? So is there a counterproductive issue going on right here? So I was asked to come and give a keynote address at a workshop that was going to begin to address these issues to see if citizen science could be used um, in the ocean. And I gave a talk, fish are just like birds, question mark, exclamation point. The idea was, let's explore this. Five years later, we have up and running an amazing citizen science program headlined by the South Atlantic Fisheries Management Council. In order to understand why that's significant, you need to know just a little bit about fisheries management. In the United States, it's the councils, and there are a bunch of them, that make the recommendations about fishing seasons and and, and limits that eventually get enacted into law. And they do this through a process called, at least partly, um, doing stock assessment. And in a stock assessment, they need data, and they need data that can come pretty much only from fishermen. So we're in the earliest stages right now of putting some projects together <clears throat> to have fishermen collect data that can go into the stock assessments that can be used to make the management recommendations. And I can't tell you where this is gonna end, <clears throat> but I can tell you that the way that we're making this work is by making sure that the scientists and the management managers are listening to the fishermen. We began that workshop, first I gave a talk, about 45 minutes long, um, which I do all the time. But then I sat down and shut up, and so did all the other scientists in the room. And we listened for hours to the fishermen complain, yell, uh, say they knew more than the scientists did. And you know what? In a lot of cases, they probably do. And from that listening session and by involving the fishermen in all of the different committees um, and working groups, and putting together the protocols that we would use to begin to develop the data collection project, we began to establish a working layer of trust. And I'm not going to tell you right now that that trust is 100%, um, and it's being tried right now by a couple of major issues that are going on, mostly having to do with Snapper, but it's hopeful. Um, And I, I just really think that if we did a better job of listening, as Finn has already said, to the stakeholders, the people who are being impacted, their livelihoods, their lives, their farms, their fish stocks, by what's going on and bringing them together as equal partners in these management decisions and developing trust, then there would be a brighter future than we have looking at us right now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting and so do you think the key there you know to the issue that you were citing or potential issue that you were citing before of you know having um perhaps incentives at cross purposes to uh, you know reporting is the key there just to, to establish trust and because of course you know ultimately over a long period of time the um, the fishers themselves are going to be dependent on that stock being healthy um is is the key to establish that trust, um, and is that what allows you to collect the data that you need, um, and to you know kind of ensure that it's going to be, of course, the right data, but also uh, you know dutifully reported and and you know targeted to the needs that are uh, afforded by management.
1: I think developing trust is absolutely essential um, to this entire process, because then when you have the trust, you can have a dialogue, you can go back and forth. The fishermen can say, you keep telling us that there are fewer individuals of this species or that species, but I know where to find them. i got hot spots go out there, and I can fish, and I can catch my limit. And then if they trust that the scientists are listening, they can hear the scientists say, yes, but you're not engaged in random sampling. You're going to the places where you know you're going to find those fish. What about the 50 places where they were last decade and they're not there anymore? Can we work with you to come up with some kind of a procedure where you try going to a couple of other places and just seeing are the fish really there? Um, But the only way that we're going to be able to work with fishermen to collect those kinds of data is to develop this trust so that the fishermen understand that their data are going to be looked at carefully and accurately, and if there really are more individuals of those species than the scientists think, that that will go into the management recommendation to the benefit of the fishermen. Without trust, we have nothing.
0: And Finn, I'm wondering if you've had, you know, similar experiences or if you would be, you know, able to kind of situate the relationship between, uh, you know, the scientific community and the indigenous community and working on uh, in community-based monitoring projects. Is that, uh, does the same trust element come into play and, you know, uh, and how is that relationship developed and and how does it kind of, um, you know, evolve over time?
2: Thanks, James. Uh, I mean, indigenous people they manage enormous land areas. I mean, they manage or have tenure rights to over a quarter of the world's land. And and, uh, and trust here is, is one really central component uh, to to work together with with uh, indigenous community members. Um, but it's important to be aware here that for indigenous community members, community-based monitoring can not only be a useful tool for ensuring sustainable use of stocks, but but very importantly also, community-based monitoring can provide a means for protecting their rights to land and resources. And we see today that in many areas that current land management systems are not able to include indigenous perspectives. And in these areas, community-based monitoring can be very, very powerful. Engaging indigenous community members in community-based monitoring can provide uh, the indigenous groups with a voice, right? By documenting what's happening with the the resources and the land in a systematical manner and by discussing their findings and communicating them together with management proposals to, for instance, Indigenous people organizations or to the authorities, in this way, the community members can become listened to. So it's not uh, outsiders, uh, you know, getting data from Indigenous community members. These are the community-based monitoring programs with indigenous uh, people typically are programs led and run by the community members themselves and they own the data I mean they might be willing to share it with others but it's their data fundamentally Uh, recently we have have seen how how monitoring uh, uh, of this kind this kind of monitoring can can have really impressive results Uh, we're working with uh, local indigenous people organizations in, uh, in Siberia, in y- Yakutia, Saka Republic. And, and there are eight groups of reindeer herders and fishermen and hunters who are uh, documenting what's happening with the environment, discussing uh, uh, what the findings and communicating it to the indigenous people organization there. Uh, and the indigenous people organization is then using these findings and discussions with the authorities about what needs to be done. And here, you know, in this case, uh, in Russia, Russia, you have, uh, according to the legislation, you have territories of traditional land use, but they, they are merely a classification paper, and, and they are only now beginning to become translated into practice through the use of community-based monitoring. The monitoring helps the indigenous people there to become to become more the subjects of the development of the traditional land, rather than than just the objects of its development. It contributes to more active local people. So they monitor the industrial developments there, that's mining that that has been undertaken and and that have been planned on the traditional territories. And and the the, the monitoring program is a tool that enables dialogue, constructive evidence-based, you could say dialogue, between the extractive industries and the owners or the users of the traditional lands. As an example, recently in um, one community, or as it's called in there, in a district, uh, Sikansk, they obtained the rights to a traditional fishing ground, partly because uh, they, had, they could document that they were keeping track of how the fisheries was going in this area through community-based monitoring. So the monitoring by the community members there empowered the, the Opsina and gave extra cloud to the, the process of obtaining the rights to the fishing ground there. And that's a really concrete example of how the community-based monitoring there is, is, is directly uh, helping the community in, 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 in ensuring access to resources.
0: That's interesting. And it, you know, kind of, um, it, it seems a parallel to, you know, things we've we've talked about before on the show, um, you know, whether that be, you know, indigenous uh, management practices for other fisheries, or, you know, ways of potentially overcoming, you know, what's often referred to as kind sort of fortress conservation. So do you see this as an antidote, as a way of engaging local communities as, uh, you know, part of the function of the ecosystem in a way that prevents it from being a purely kind of top-down decision-making approach?
2: Well, I can say that the indigenous people's organizations in, in Akutia, uh, they're, they're, uh, they, they, you know, they're discussing their experiences with other indigenous people's organizations across Arctic Russia, and, uh, and, and right now there's a process trying to get hold of funds to, to expand this you know across uh, the indigenous people uh, organizations across Arctic Russia uh so so they 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 see this as a very concrete and 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 really and and very concrete and realistic you could say i mean a tool that 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 directly goes in and assists the indigenous people that 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 are depending you know through herding of reindeer through fishing through hunting they're depending so much on the natural resource base and they see that, that 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 the environmental changes are just Happening so fast uh, these years now, and and industrial development as well. So they they see this as a as a very concrete tool that is incredibly helpful for for them. Um, in uh, and so it's you know f- I think for me it's really interesting to see that here we have been we're moving far away actually from biology and you know? we're moving into to you know uh, uh, very marginalised poor communities uh, that are that are making. You know, trying to consolidate a livelihood that they've had in the past, and and to be able to continue that in the future with with you know with a, with a culture with a, you know with the kids growing up learning how to do these things uh, with with uh, members of the the community monitoring groups explaining the schools you know the results of the monitoring taking in school kids that are then doing small uh, you know studies of of of. of uh, uh, the creeks and next to, uh, to the to the cities and 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 and, dis- and you know it's being used by school teachers uh, for discussing what's happening with, with the environment and what can we do about it so it's 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 a uh, you know biology it, it came from biology but it's moving into all sorts of other aspects of uh, uh, of, of, of the of, of the sustainability and human rights uh, agenda also.
0: It sounds like an incredibly empowering, um, way of doing, you know, management that we have not necessarily seen always historically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, kind of brings us to an interesting point, which is, um, you know, talking about some of the things that are going to be taking place in the future in this field. Um, And, you know, kind of what do you see on the outlook? Uh, What do you see um, as being the developments that we're most likely going to experience and see going forward? Uh, What should we be looking for in terms of, you know, future publications uh, following on from, you know, uh, this special section?
1: So when people ask me to project in the future, I very often, maybe even always, end up going back to the past and projecting are uh, looking at a bit of a trajectory, and I'm going to uh, ask you to indulge me to do that for just a moment here. Um, so I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, grew up in a family that was very nature-oriented, which was not that usual back then, and I got started in what you might call citizen science at an early age by my father. When I asked him one day, I said, I, you know, i got to do a science fair project, and I don't want to go do this project and give water to one plant and not water to another plant and see which one does better. I want to do something interesting. And he said, sure, find out the answer to a question nobody knows the answer to. Go out in the woods behind our house and study the wildlife out there and write about what you learn. And I said, that sounds like fun. And so I did it. I learned a lot. One of the things I learned is that there were flying squirrels in our woods. Who knew? Nobody knew. And I wrote that up and I published it in the local newsletter called the Glacial Deposit of the little community I lived in called Glacier Hills in Parsippany, New Jersey. And that's, spark from my father and that encouragement and that understanding that I could make scientific discovery propelled me to Cornell and through my undergraduate days and into volunteering at the Lab of Ornithology and learning that there was this field of volunteer engagement and the nest record cards and then going on to graduate school and continuing to do that and then eventually founding or co-founding the Citizen Science Program at the Lab of Ornithology. And in the early days, so much of what we were doing was about convincing scientists, convincing the establishment that, quote-unquote, ordinary people could make accurate observations that could help us understand more about the environment around us. And over the last three decades, that's happened more and more and more, and the field has grown such that in 2009, um, we were able to publish a paper in Bioscience called Citizen Science, a Developing Tool for Expanding Science Knowledge and Scientific Literacy, which has now been cited more than 2,000 times, um, showing two things. One, that there is a real deep interest in citizen science, and two, that a journal like Bioscience, by publishing an article like that in the early days, when we were first defining the field and first showing that this is possible that, quote, unquote, ordinary people can contribute, help to legitimize this field and move it forward. In some ways, bioscience took a risk on that paper. But look, 2,000 citations later, it's really, really helped to grow the field. However, there is another kind of sea change happening. The world that I grew up in as a kid, in the woods of New Jersey, reading Hal Borland and Edwin Way Teal and even the early Ed Abbey book, that's not really around so much anymore for the kids and the younger folks today. They've grown up in a completely different world where they feel autonomous and they feel empowered and they feel that they can change the world and that they do know what we need to do and that, of course, they can collect data. They can not only collect it, but they can analyze it, publish it, and and change the world, sometimes almost all by themselves. So, I think for anybody to speculate on the future of citizen science would be almost foolish at this point, because we really don't know what the younger generations are going to be able to do, what they're capable of. And one of the most important things that we can do as scientists is to get out of their way and pay attention to what the communities are telling us. What is important to them? What do they need to know? What data can they gather? What does the future look like for them? And then we could do the best that we can to help them learn a little bit more about science and about the process of science so that we still have good science and peer review but be very very open to all kinds of change that we probably can't even envision even five years down the road
2: i think these are good points rick um and i think that with this special section on community-based monitoring in, in in bioscience we have demonstrated, as others have have before us, that community-based monitoring can deliver credible data, inform decision-making, and empower communities for resource governance. Despite the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the Convention on Biological Diversity, they both have recognized the the, the huge importance of involving local knowledge and indigenous knowledge in, in efforts on sustainable development we still see that community-based monitoring remains largely absent from con- conservation practice. There are many, pr- there are programs running, but I mean, they are absent from from mainstream conservation practice, and they're still I mean, still only running here and there across the world. And uh, I think that it's really clear that communities that use the environment on a daily basis they represent a vast but largely untapped source of knowledge on the mm-hmm. world's environment. And these years we're seeing the largest change in the distribution of life on earth caused by climate change for 25,000 years. The climate changes are, in, and the, the, the change in the distribution of species are impacting ecosystems, human health and many economic sectors. And if we are to adapt our use of the environment to these very rapid changes, we need all hands on deck we need both scientists knowledge and we need the knowledge of the people who live on the land
0: great and i think that's an excellent um, point on which to, to close out this conversation i'd like to thank you both for joining me today and also of course um thank you for being handling editors of bioscience uh you know peer review doesn't happen without that type of service it is of paramount importance so uh, thank you both very much
2: great it was it was great fun and uh, and uh, thanks for this opportunity, Rick. It was four, four, five years ago that 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 you and we talked about this the first time, this possibility of this special section. And I guess now we, this is it, and fi- completed with this podcast.
0: Yeah, and let it be known that it does take a little while to get a bioscience special section out. Uh, I hope you'll both join me again sometime. Thank you very much.